Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Right. Well, as you can tell from reading this morning, if you got here before worship started, that we're in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're doing the last church, uh, the last letter to the last church, the church of Laodicea. Uh, and that really, it's known as the lukewarm church. And we'll get into that as we get into this passage of scripture. Uh, but one thing I wanted to share with you, first of all, is just kind of an end of the year prophecy update. And I don't have a whole lot of stuff to really lay, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of stuff, and we could have gone over a lot of things, but I really didn't want to. I think there's one thing that stands out for 2017 that I think is going to be something big in 2018, and that is keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Man, it's amazing, you know, just just the uh, the uh, uh, what's going on as far as uh, you know the United States. Uh, making that decision to move their embassy to Jerusalem. I've heard other countries are now considering doing the same thing. And, of course, the Muslim world is pretty upset about that. And and, uh, so, you know, uh, in Zechariah chapter 12, it says this in verses 1 through 3. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold... I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Fascinating because the United States right now is is not... Uh, gathered against uh, Jerusalem, against Israel. Uh, we are standing by them, and there, apparently there's some other countries that are wanting to do the same thing uh, following the lead of, of our president. So uh, interesting days. And uh, But I would say keep your eyes on Jerusalem. It's going to be in the news this year, and who knows what's going to happen. Uh, we know eventually, the Bible says eventually, that all nations are going to turn. So uh, is this a, just a, a season, a short window of 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 blessing or you know who knows um but we do know that we're close to the end days because uh, jerusalem's uh, definitely in the news you can't a day doesn't go by without something having to deal with jerusalem so as far as prophecy keep your eyes on jerusalem in 2018 so now going to our last letter of the last church there in uh in uh Revelation there in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. Laodicea, we'll get into a little bit about Laodicea, uh, but it's mentioned by Paul uh, in this closing of the letter to the Colossians. And Colossae was close to uh, uh, Laodicea. But in Colossians 4.16, Paul says this, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So evidently, it seems to be that there was a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Laodicea, an epistle. To uh, and, and if it was in our Bible, it would be maybe Laodiceans or something like that. Who knows what it would have been called? I'm sure that's what it would have been called. But, um, but we don't have it. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit decided not to leave that with us. So we, we don't know what happened to that epistle. But uh, So Laodicea was mentioned uh, in Paul's writings. 
um, before we get into the rest of this last of this chapter and you know you might be saying you, you've gone over this every week that we've de- dealt with the churches of revelation um, the outline of the book of revelation i just really want to drill it into you because i think it's so important to understand it and uh, so just the outline and the holy spirit gives us the outline in chapter one jesus himself says write the things which you have seen which was the vision of jesus christ in chapter one saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in his glory in heaven. That's the things that John saw. So that's the first part of of the book of Revelation. And then he's to write the things which are. And that is the letters to the seven churches that were literal churches in existence at the time that John wrote this. Um, And uh, so that's chapters 2 through 3. It's also representative of the church age. Um, And then finally, the last portion is write the things which will take place after this which would be after the church age, after chapters 3, which would be chapters 4 through 22, the things that will take place after the church age. And that's going to be our next focus when we finish chapter 3, what takes place afterwards. I'm excited about that, um, getting into that. And and I'll have a whole other outline for us to look at when we get to chapter 4. Um, I didn't want to bombard you in the beginning, so but it's really simple. It's not confusing. So, all right, let's get into our study. Verse 14 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Um, if you've been here uh, you've known that I've done, uh, you know, uh, I've gone through the salutation. There's like seven segments or seven portions of each letter that's kind of the same uh, of all the letters. And usually I start with the salutation to the angel of the church of so-and-so. Um, but I'm not going to start there. And there's a reason why. And instead, I'm going to start with the revelation, Christ's revelation of himself. Because to each letter, to each church, Jesus reveals a different aspect of himself to that church uniquely, and it fits in with what he wants to tell that church and what's the condition of that church. So I want to look at that very first thing, the revelation that Jesus says there. It's also found in verse 14. It says, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice that Jesus calls himself the Amen. Now, if you've been praying, as you've grown up praying, or maybe you're praying, you know, you say Amen at the end of your prayer. Sometimes in the Bible, there'll be something that'll say Amen. What is Amen? It, it, it means really to be firm, uh, trustworthy. Um, it's like to say, surely, you know, we might say, so be it. You know, there's a, there's a phrase or something that's like, let, you know, let it be. Verily, it'd be another uh, word for that. It basically means that whatever it is that we've said, it's settled. Amen. So let it be. And so Jesus calls himself the Amen. And then he calls himself the faithful and true witness. This is going to come in significantly, I think, with the with this letter to the Laodiceans. You know, Paul, in writing about the last days, which I think we are very close to, if not in the last days, um, Paul warned the Thessalonians about an apostate church um, that will exist in the last days. And I think Laodicea fits the description of that church. I think it represents the, the apostate church in the last days. But he wrote to uh, the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. He says this, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away 
comes first. And that word, the falling away, is apostasia. It means apostasy. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul is saying, hey, in the last days, there's going to be a tremendous falling away. And I think we're actually seeing that in Christianity today, an, an apostasy, apostasy uh, that's occurring. Um, I think it has throughout all the church ages, but I think we're going to see an increase of it and, and, and a magnitude. And, and here Paul calls it the falling away. So it's not just speaking in general terms, but there's going to be a specific apostasy, a falling away. So why does Jesus reveal himself as the Amen the faithful and true witness. Remember I said that, the amen, like it's settled, so be it. Um, Well, Jesus and his word, which is the Bible, is the amen. It is the faithful and true witness. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. In other words, what he says is firm, it's settled, it's trustworthy. God's word is the final authority. It's absolute truth. So be it, it's settled. Um, and this is important. Jude, when he was writing his epistle in verse 3 of chapter 1, he had a whole idea. He was going to write an epistle. He says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. So he's going to write something about our common salvation. Maybe he was going to encourage the people or whatever. But he says this, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints it was once for all delivered doesn't need to be changed there's no new revelations it's settled and so this is what jesus is this is how jesus is referring himself to uh the church of laodicea you know there's even now and i think there's going to continue to be within what we call the church a moving away from the authority of jesus christ and a moving away from the settled word of god which is the bible I have an article that I want to read to you, and I, I hope it doesn't offend anyone, but it's called, it's a Swarthmore, Swarthmore College. Um, I don't even know where that is, but uh, where's that? Pennsylvania. Okay, East, East Coast. Um, they're offering a college course this coming semester called Queering God. And uh, it says here, one of the nation's most prestigious, prestigious liberal arts colleges is advancing a queer theology agenda with hopes of destabilizing traditional beliefs about what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. And it goes on to describe, it says, Queering the Bible is a one-credit class that surveys queers and trans readings of biblical texts. By reading the Bible... With the methods of queer and trans theoretical approaches, this class destabilizes long-held assumptions about what the Bible and religion says about gender and sexuality. The course description reads. There's more to it, but I'm not going to. I'm not going <clears> to. <throat> I think I've made my point. Um, we're seeing now. They're saying, you know, you can't take the Bible as it is. We're redefining it. We're looking at it in a different way and stuff. And and Jesus says, hey, I am settled. I am faithful and true. My word is faithful and true. It's it's settled. The amen. So I think we're going to see a growth. And that's just one example. And then he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now, why would that be important? 
Why is mentioning creation important to the church in Laodicea? And I think the reason why is because if the creation account can be dismissed, then the God of creation can be dismissed. Isaiah 45, verse 18, the Lord says this, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. In Genesis chapter 5, we're told that Adam was created in the likeness of God. See, if we can dismiss the God of creation, then man himself is God. We don't have anybody to, to answer to. We control our destiny. You know, we're just we're coming back to that. It, it's funny, you know, it's not funny, it's sad, but it's true. You know, society or, or, or humanity, we go in a full circle. You know, back in the Tower of Babel, they were like, there's nothing we can do, man. We, can, we gather together, we, we can control our destiny. And we're back to that point now. In, in humanity, where we're at this point of, you know, we're singing, we are the world, you know, I mean, we, we, if we pull together, there's nothing that we can't do. And so it's like, we're placing ourselves in the position of God. So mentioning the beginning of the creation of God is important here, and applicable, especially to an apostate church in the last days. So what was, what is the purpose of of the creation. I want to read this. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2 verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a reason why you and I were created. We were created to worship God. Now, some people worship themselves or they worship other things, but we were created to worship God and to do those things that he created you and I to do. He's given us each specific things that he wants us to do. And see, if I wasn't created by God to worship him and to do those things, then I'm answerable to no one. I can live my life to please myself. By the way, it's kind of interesting, but verse 14 there in Revelation chapter 3, it's a favorite verse for cults like the Jehovah Witnesses. The reason why is they say, well, look, it says there, Jesus is the beginning of Jehovah's creations. He, he's, he was created, and that's one of the things that the cults will say. They'll deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They'll say he's created. He's a created being. But that word beginning there is the Greek word arche. And although it can mean the person or thing that commences, the first person or thing in a series, the leader, it also means that by which anything begins to be, the origin and the active cause, excuse me. And I think if you take, if you look at the Bible in its context, you'll see that that's the context, that Jesus is the origin. In fact, you know, you don't have to go too far. Just go to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He created. Everything was created by Him and for Him. Uh, Colossians 1, 16, verse 17. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things cons consist. So that whole argument that Jesus was created, it just, it just, it, it goes nowhere because of the, the full context of all the other scriptures that support the deity of Jesus Christ. 
But you see in the last days, and, and you can wonder why creation is being attacked. And there's people even in the church they believe in, you know, that, that somehow evolution kind of played a role in creation. And, and why is there such a, 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 a focus on that, an attack on that? Because if you can get God out of creation, then we're not answerable to anybody. Then we're in control. And we're going to see that that's significant for the church of Laodicea. And so that's why I want to go back now to the salutation. Because I think this is unique and telling. The beginning of verse 14 says, And to the angel... Of the church of the Laodiceans write. And then he goes on and continues. This is different, by the way, from all the other letters. He didn't write it to the angel of the church of Laodicea. He didn't write it to the angel of the church in Laodicea. He wrote it to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. That's significant. What about Laodicea? The Laodicea was formerly known as Diospolis. Um, it, the ki- Syrian king Seleucus uh, II changed its name, uh, and he named it after his wife. Her name was Laodice or Laodike. Um, the word Laodicea is a compound. It's a compound word of uh, la- Laos, which means a people or a people group, um, and uh, DK. And uh, I've got a kind of a long definition. I don't think I'm going to read it because it just gets kind of confusing. Um, Thayer's Bible Dictionary has a good description or good understanding of what this means. It means justice of the people. In other words, the people are in control. The people determine what's just. The people determine, you know, they they set the standard here. That's really what the name Laodicea means or it infers. And so I think it's significant, especially for this letter that Jesus is revealing to them. Now, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4... Verses 3 and 4 says, For the time will come, again, speaking of the last days, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. It's like they don't want to hear what the Bible says. They don't want to hear what the God says. They, they, want, to, they want to hear what they want to hear. The people are in control. No longer is Jesus the authority of this church. The people are, the Laodiceans, the justice of the people. One of the biggest areas of departure from the authority of Jesus and his word, and I think we're going to see it more and more, is in the area of human sexuality. Um, we've got same-sex marriages that are being performed and, and condoned in, in, in churches today. Uh, even some churches uh, ordain openly practicing homosexuals. Uh, I think the newest thing we're going to be dealing with is transgender issues. Um, so there's all these things. But, but that's one of the biggest areas, I think, of departure from the authority of Jesus' word. It's like, you know, um, it's, it's, the Bible's outdated. We, we have to come up with something. We have to decide what it means and everything. That's Laodicea. The people are ruling. So what's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition? Verses 15 and 16. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What does being hot means? It's referring to basically spiritual verver or zeal. We'll say somebody is zealous or they're, they're fervent. That, that's what he's referring to as being hot. It's spiritually hot. 
Being cold, here's a definition, of one destitute of warm Christian faith and the desire for holiness, attached to the world and actively opposed to the church. So you got one extreme, you're spiritually fervent, you're on fire for the Lord. The other extreme is probably not a Christian at all. They are, they're attached to the world and they're actively opposed to God or to the things of Christ, to the things of the church. Um, And then there's that situation in between, lukewarm, someone who's indifferent, someone who's compromised, speaking of spiritually there. Jesus says, I could wish you were cold or hot. Does that strike you as odd? Why would Jesus wish that someone was cold? I mean, you know, if you're lukewarm, at least you're not cold, right? You're, You're kind of, you're closer to hot, but you're not. But you see, for someone who's cold, there's still hope for someone who's spiritually cold that they could be made spiritually hot, spiritually fervent. But someone who is spiritually lukewarm, they're comfortable in the state that they're in. They're acclimated to their surroundings, and spiritually, they're useless. Think about hot water. I'll just use these illustrations. You know, I, 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 uh, my back was hurting me yesterday, and uh, I was... Uh, thinking, boy, I should take a hot bath, man. I never got around to doing it, but I thought, man, I should take a hot bath because that, that hot water, maybe throw some Epsom salt in, man, that just soothes the muscles, right? Hot water does something. It has an effect on what it comes in contact with. It's effective for cleaning. I work as a janitor in evenings just to make ends meet, and I, you know, when I'm mopping the floor, I use hot water because, man, that, that cleans. It, it's effective for cleaning. It has an effect on whatever it comes in contact with. I learned early on making making uh, drinks that, you know, when you're mixing sugar, it melts easier in hot water than in lukewarm water or cold water. But cold water is also effective. It's refreshing, and I'm not speaking about spiritually cold. I'm just the illustration of cold water. It's refreshing, right? On a hot day, nothing like a cold glass of water is great. And it also has an effect on what it comes in contact with. You can pour cold water in something, it's going to make something cold. Likewise, you pour hot water in something, it's going to warm something up. But lukewarm water does neither. It has no effect on what it comes in contact with. And I don't know about you, but drinking cold water is good. Drinking cold milk is good. I even drink hot milk sometimes when I put something in it. I don't drink it by itself. But, but you know, lukewarm milk or lukewarm water is like, well, just doesn't taste good. And as far as drinking goes, it's disgusting. In fact, so much so that Jesus says he will spew, that's the King James, spew the lukewarm person out of his mouth. And we translate here in the New King James as vomit, hurl, puke. I mean, you get the idea, right? What is vomiting? It's violent. It's certainly unattractive. And it's uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I hate puking. (laughs) You know, that's like, oh, I dread that. I hate to puke. And so when Jesus says to the church of Laodiceans, to those that are lukewarm, he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's not like, yeah, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. No, he hates it. He doesn't want to vomit anybody out of his mouth. Jesus doesn't hate people. He loves people. It grieves him. But, you know, puking sometimes is necessary. Sometimes it's necessary to purge the body of something that's causing harm or illness. And so, in this case, it's necessary. Now, 
was Jesus is giving this description and John's writing this down and the church of Laodicea is reading this, they could identify with what Jesus was saying. Because the city of Laodicea, it was a very beautiful city. It was a very wealthy city. It was a fabulous place, great location. The one thing that was a drawback to that city was their water supply. They had a very poor water supply. Now, there was another city nearby, about six miles away, called Hierapolis, and they had hot springs at Hierapolis. And so in order to get water down to Laodicea, they created a six-mile aqueduct that came down from the hot springs of Hierapolis down to Laodicea. There's a problem with that, though. By the time the water made the six-mile journey, it was lukewarm. It wasn't hot anymore. So that's, that's, what they, that's what they dealt with. I don't know, who knows? Maybe it smelled like sulfur and lukewarm and just like, ugh, you know. Um, so they could identify with that. Well, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, are, you know, is Jesus speaking about Christians when he's talking about lukewarm people? <clears throat> or are these people unsaved, and yet they have enough religiosity but no relationship with Jesus? Um, opposed to someone who's maybe totally outright militant against God. Well, you know, as I was looking at this, studying this, I was reflecting on this. I think, you know, I don't think Jesus will spew any of his children out of his mouth. That's just my opinion. I don't think he will. However, this is still a letter is important to us. If you, if you look at it and say, well, I think that's unbelievers. You know, they're, they're religious, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And in the late church related see, it was probably full of those. But I think it's also applicable to you and I, whether or not he's speaking about Christians. Because becoming lukewarm is certainly a problem for believers. We can become ineffective. We can be to the point where we're so complacent, where we, we no longer have an impact on those around us. We're affected by the culture, but we don't affect the culture. I'll be honest with you, I found myself in a state of being like the Laodiceans at different times in my spiritual walk. There are times where uh, the Bible describes it in the Old Testament, halting between two opinions, or being having a divided heart, having lost my zeal, not having any effect on those I come in contact with. I've been acclimated to my surroundings. I've grown complacent. I've experienced that in my own walk as a Christian. So this is applicable. But again, I think verse 16 is describing the lukewarm as unbelievers who are indifferent to Christ, but are in the church of Laodicea. They have no real saving relationship with the Lord. And they're in a bad place because they think that they're right with the Lord. They think that that they're they're in a good place. They think that they're right. And yet, they're they're not in between. I mean, they're in between. They're, They're nowhere. And Jesus says this, verse 17... Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I want to just share a little bit about the city of Laodicea, a little bit more about the city besides their water. But the city was located uh, along the Lycus River Valley. Uh, Hierapolis and Colossae were both in that same valley. And this valley... Uh, had a natural route that traveled from east to west. Where Laodicea was located was literally at an intersection of three major trade routes. They were right there smack dab in the middle. So as a result of that, they were extremely wealthy. 
for different reasons. First of all, it was a commerce hub for all these traders that came through and passing by. Everybody going everywhere, they had to come through Laodicea. And so the trade, uh, it was a commerce hub. It was also a banking center in that day. <clears throat> they had, a, a, I guess, a very big school of medicine there too. But they also developed and sold there, and it was world-renowned, a thing called Phrygian powder. When this powder was mixed into a salve, it was said to cure eye ailments and ear ailments. It was an elixir type of a thing. Um, but it's interesting. Recent chemical analysis now reveals that there was no healing properties in this stuff at all. Interesting. But no one knew that then, and so they sold a lot. <laughs> I mean, it was like big business, you know, come to get the get this Phrygian powder from Laodicea. So they sold a lot, and you know what? No one can sue them now, right, for being a false product or false... It's, it's, no one's around to sue them, so um, they made a lot of money off of it. That was part of their wealth. Not only that, but there was a unique black wolf fabric that they they grew or they raised i should say they raised black sheep there in that area of laodicea they harvested or they sheared those sheep that black wool and they created uh this unique fabric that was world renowned also it was only from that region and so they were very wealthy um as a city because of all these different aspects but in 60 AD laodicea was hit with a really severe earthquake and it was destroyed. And Rome, like they had done to other cities and other earthquakes, Rome offered to help rebuild the city. In fact, they said, we'll send you federal aid. You guys heard of that before, right? We'll send you, maybe FEMA was there, I don't know, with their trailers. But they, they, they were offering to send, with their chariots, I guess it would be. Um, they were offering to send uh, federal aid to the city. They were so wealthy, though, they turned it down. Tacitus, or Tacitus, Roman historian tells us Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. They're like, we can do it ourselves. Talk about pride. And they had wealth. They were material wealthy, uh, materially wealthy. They were in need of nothing. But Jesus says, you know what? You're spiritually, you think you're spiritually wealthy and you're in need of nothing, but you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They're wretched. I like what Adam Clark says in his commentary. They were most wretched. The word signifies, according to Mintert, being worn out and fatigued with grievous labors, as they who labor in a stone quarry or are condemned to the mines. So instead of being children of God as they supposed, and infallible heirs of the kingdom, they were in the sight of God in the condition of the most abject slaves. That's why I don't think they were believers. They thought that they were, they were you know, children of God, but instead God looks at them and goes, you're a slave to sin. You're in slavery. You're in bondage. Not only that, but they were miserable. And that word means to be most pitied. They were poor. Oh, they were materially wealthy, but they were spiritually poor toward God. And they were blind. They didn't even see their spiritual condition. And I think it's significant that their eye salve turned out to be fake. Because I think it's just a picture. They had a false view, a fake view of their spiritual state. Not only that, but they were naked. Now, nakedness in the Bible is always a picture of shame. 
Today it's not. But in the Bible, it was always a picture of shame. And so Jesus says, you don't know that. You think you're all these things, and yet you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so now he has a word to the church. Christ's unique message to the church of the Laodiceans, verse 18. I counsel you to buy gold from me. Excuse me, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. So you think about all these things with Laodicea. Man, what an applicable message to those people that they could understand. And you know, that's the way the Lord communicates with us, right? He communicates in a way, he deals with us in our situation where we're at so that we can understand. And he was dealing that with the church of Laodicea. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire that you may be rich. In other words, don't try to provide your own gold. Purchase it from me. See, they thought they were self-sufficient. They thought they were, they were you know, they, they didn't need anything, but they needed to buy gold from the Lord. Gold refined in the fire, it speaks of faith in Christ Jesus. And being refined in the fire is kind of, it's referring to that purifying process of refinement. In the ancient days, the gold smelters, the refiners, what they would do is they would heat up the gold and they would, as the impurities would come to the top of the surface of this gold, they would scrape away the, the impurities and throw it out, you know, like slag. They just grow, you know, get, it, get rid of the impurities. When they knew that the gold was pure enough is when the refiner could see his reflection in the gold, the liquid gold, and he said, it's done, it's pure. So that's what Jesus does in us as Christians. He's refining us. He's, he's, sometimes we're in the heat, right? We're in the fire of trials or whatever, and he's wanting to scrape away that junk that's in our hearts and in our lives, and he's trying to get to the point where he can finally see himself in us. That's the, that's the purifying work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed. And I think that's significant here. They, they provided their own black wool, but they needed white garments. And in the Bible, white garments is a picture of Christ's righteousness. You know, the Bible says that all our righteous deeds, everything that we do apart from God, everything that we try to do in our strength, you know, go, look, I, 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 I'm doing all these good things. And God looks and goes, man, that's filthy rags. It's, it doesn't do anything. You're doing something in your own strength, your own works. You can't earn your own righteousness. And so we need the garments of Christ's righteousness that we may be clothed and that the shame of our nakedness may not be revealed. You know, Adam and Eve, they knew that they were naked after they sinned. And what did they do? They hid from the Lord and they tried to cover themselves. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that's a picture of man trying to cover his own shame with his own righteousness. And the Lord says, you can't do it. It's not going to work. That's why they sowed fig leaves and Jesus gave them uh, a, a, a skin from an animal to cover them. And he says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Again, their salve was a fake. They needed Christ's salve to really see. What is that referring to? That's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing to you and I our spiritual state. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin and their need of a Savior. And then verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Now, just get the picture here. These people were so smug, so well off that they didn't need anything. They were so complacent. They were so sickening, lukewarm. Jesus, I got to spew you out of my mouth. And yet, Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus loves them still. That blows my mind away. Why didn't he just send down fire, you know, and destroy the place? No, he loved them. He's giving them a chance to repent. He's rebuking them and chastising them. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. In other words, become hot. Become fervent for Jesus. Repent, which means to turn away from your sin and to turn toward Jesus. Become hot. You know, again, I think this is speaking of unbelievers, but it's so applicable to you and I. Jesus wants us to be effective in our in our community, in our generation, in our life. He wants us to have that effect in this world. And, and if, we're, if we're lukewarm, we're not affecting anything. We're being affected by our culture. And so this is for us as well. And finally, one of the sections of all the letters is either a promise or a threat of Christ's coming. And in this case, I think it's a promise, which... It's interesting because if you look at it, of a church of Laodicea, why don't you just give them a threat? Now, when he says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, that wasn't a threat. He says, I'm going to do that. But here, verse 20, I think is the promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I don't know if you guys have seen that picture before. Very famous picture. Um, I, I remember when I was a kid in elementary school getting a, a New Testament Bible from someone, a little mini pocket Bible, and that was a picture that was, I think, right inside there, the picture of Jesus knocking on the door of an individual's heart. What a beautiful picture. Jesus says, if anyone... See, this is, this is he's not just speaking to the church of Laodicea. He's speaking to the individuals in the church, to anyone. If anyone hears my voice. You know, it's an interesting thing about that, and I just learned this just recently. If you notice, there's no door latches, no handles on that door that he painted. And someone said, hey, you left off the handles. And the artist said, no, the handle's on the inside. Because only the person on the inside can open the door. I think it's so, so important. Meanwhile, Jesus is gently knocking on the door of our hearts. You know, the Holy Spirit's just always trying to get our attention. Hey, I'm still here. I love you. Repent. Turn to me. Interestingly, last week we looked at the Church of Philadelphia, or actually the week before, the Church of Philadelphia, they were the door that had, or they, excuse me, they were the church that had an open door, the Bible says that no man could shut. An open door, no man can shut, but here the Church of Laodicea has a shut door that only man can open. Only man can open. Only you can open your heart to the Lord. He's not going to, he's not going to bust down your door. He's not the big bad, big, bad wolf. He's, he's not going to huff and puff and knock your door. He's waiting for you to open your door to him. But once that door is open to Jesus, he says he's going to come in and dine with that person. That's a picture of communion and relationship. That word dine is the Greek word dipneo. Uh, 
I, again, I, I, I don't pronounce Greek well, but um, it's not like the dine and dash that you and I are, cons- you know, in our culture, man, it, it, to get someone to sit down and have a meal, it's like next to impossible usually, right? You, you're grabbing a bite as you're way out the door, you know, breakfast, you're on the way out or, you know, dinner sometimes. That's why we do our potlucks here at church. It's kind of, let's bring us all back together. Let's sit and fellowship and enjoy a meal together. That's a whole purpose. Well, not the whole purpose, but that's a good big part of Wednesday evenings. You know, sometimes when my wife and I are traveling, we did it not too long ago. You know, we're on our way going somewhere, and, and uh, it's like, let's run through a drive through and eat on the way, you know. And he's like, rrr, 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 you, know, rrr, rrr, you know, oh, I just spilled, you know. That's not the meal that Jesus is talking about here. This dipneo is the principal meal of the day. It was, in that culture, a leisurely meal with conversation. So you're not only sharing food together, but you're sharing fellowship with one another. That's what the Lord's talking about. Sometimes in our relationship, we just want to dine and dash with the Lord, right? We just want to say our little prayer and move on, you know? But the Lord wants us to linger and just to fellowship with him. And then he's got a promise here to the individual overcomer. Verse 21. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, think of the con- the context here. This is the lukewarm apostate church where Jesus is on the outside. I mean, this is uh, the worst church of the worst one. It's the worst one there of all the seven churches, in my personal opinion. The one that's poor, miserable, blind, and naked, and yet Jesus gives the promise to the overcomer, if the individuals in that church repent and turn to Christ and be zealous, it'll be granted to them to sit with Christ on his throne. Now think about this. John the Apostle is the one who's listening to Jesus, Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, writing it down, okay, uh, yep, okay. Do you remember in the Gospels, John and his brother James, they talked their mother into going to Jesus and saying, hey, Lord, would you grant that my sons, when you enter into your kingdom, that my sons, John and James, can, one can sit on your right hand and one can sit on your left hand. Do you remember that? Jesus said to them, he didn't say to his mother, he said to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptize, baptism that I am to be baptized with? And they said, uh-huh, we're able Jesus says, well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. That's what, that's what they heard Jesus say. Hey, it's not mine to give to you. It's only prepared for those that the Father is prepared. So, he, so maybe all down through these ages, like, I wonder who those people are. And now, the end of his life, he hears this letter of the Laodiceans. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne. I can imagine John going, what? No fair. Wait a minute. What's the deal here? I'll tell you what the deal here is. This is a beautiful picture of God's grace. What a beautiful picture. Even the foulest wretch, if they repent, they're going to be allowed into the kingdom just like one who never lived that wretched life. They were just kind of a good person, but they still needed a Savior. And maybe they finally repented of their sins and came to Christ. You know, when they were relatively good, they were moral, they, they recycled, you know, they were kind to their animals, all that stuff, you know, helped 
people cross the street and stuff. They weren't the foulest wretch. And yet the foulest wretch that repents and turns to the Lord, they have the same standing in heaven. It reminds me of the, the prodigal son. Remember, you know, he did, he spent all that, he, all that his father's wealth, he spent it all on wine, women, and song, and he ended up, you know, in the, basically feeding pigs and, you know, eating their slop because he was so hungry. And he thought, man, I'm going to go back to my father. And the father saw him and, and welcomed him back and gave him, gave him new clothes, you know, set, prepare a feast for him. And the older brother who had never left, he was a good guy. He was responsible. He was always there for his dad. He's like, man, this is not fair. It's not fair. This is, this is the same thing here. Yeah, I think John's probably like, what? But it's such a beautiful picture of God's grace. And so finally, we have the admonition for the individual to hear what the Spirit says, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And of course, this has been the same phrase that Jesus used for all of the letters to all of the churches. And I think it's the Holy Spirit speaking that through all generations to all churches, to all individuals. If you have ears, I've got two of them. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the Spirit saying to you this morning? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, man, I tell you, you're not going to earn salvation with your own righteousness. You need the robes of Christ's righteousness. You need to repent of your sins. Put your trust in Christ for your salvation, not rely on your own works. And if you are in a state of being lukewarm, you're no longer effective as a Christian, I don't think there's the danger that Christ is going to spew you out of his mouth, but I think there's still a danger because we're not, we're not effective for the kingdom. We're, not, we're useless. You know, the enemy, man, he would like nothing better than for us to be useless so that we have no effect on the people around us. And so maybe as we get to the end of 2017, what a neat thing. You know, we're finishing this year. You know, a lot of times we, we make, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start exercising more. You know, I'm going to clean up my house better. Whatever it is, you know, I'm going to do this or that. What a good resolution for us to say, you know what, I'm going to be zealous. I'm going I'm to become more zealous for the Lord this coming year in 2018. So I want to encourage us maybe to pray this morning as I close this letter. You guys can stand up and let, let's go to Lord in prayer. And then Luke, if, guys, if you want to come up, worship team. I'll pray and then we'll, we'll finish up with a couple of worship songs here. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. <clears throat> Lord, it's a difficult word to teach and, and uh, maybe it's even a difficult word to hear, but it's an important thing to hear. And Lord God, as we finish the year 2017, Lord, um, I know in my own life, Lord, I need to become more zealous. I need to be more hot for you, spiritually hot, Lord God. And so Lord, for any of us, or maybe all of us here this morning, we just ask, the Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would just reignite that flame in us, Lord, that you would, Lord, that you would fan the fire in our hearts for you, that as we enter into 2018, Lord, that would be the one resolution that we keep, Lord, that we just are falling more in love with you and we're more committed to you and more on fire for you in 2018 than we were in 2017. 
So we thank you for your Holy Spirit giving us this message on this day, this last Sunday in 2017. And so, Lord, this morning, we just come before you. Lord, we repent of our sins. Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, just take us into that deeper, closer relationship with you that we all need and we all desire, Lord God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.